And I invite you to turn in your copies of Scripture to Genesis chapter 15. I'll be reading two portions of Scripture for the sermon today. Genesis 15 and then a portion from Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. A lot of Scripture reading today in our worship service. But that's good. Because the Word of God is truth. All right. Let's hear from Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear once again the very words of God. After these things, the word of God came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have... You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not yours, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years." And also the nation whom you serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, that it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And now from Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say, that Abraham our father has found, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of a man 
to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then is it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The grass withers, the flowers they fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we once again look into the covenants that you've structured for mankind from the earliest of days, Right through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Keeper of the New Covenant, we give thanks. And we pray now, Father, as we look into this covenant that you made with Abraham, that we would be encouraged. That these, uh, the sign that you gave him to assure him that that covenant would endure is one that is profound. And may we understand it with clarity. Encourage us that you declare all that comes to pass and that you've made provision for our salvation, and that by faith we may trust in your words and your promises. So give us that kind of faith, Lord. And I pray that for everyone in this room, from the smallest child to the oldest adult, that they would trust you when you say that that you will forgive their sins in Jesus Christ. And this we pray in his mighty name and for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen. Well, brethren, as we return again to the subject of God's covenants, we're making a progression in the Old Testament from creation, and we progress to Genesis chapter 15. That's our text today, although there are three different places in the book of Genesis that this covenant is spoken of. It's spoken of before uh, chapter 15. I believe it's in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, and then also again in chapter 17. Next week, we're going to spend time looking at it in chapter 17 uh, because there's some uh, particulars there that we need to pay attention to in terms of of God making covenants with men. Uh, There's another, uh, well, uh, let me say this. One of the important aspects of this covenant is how God assures 
Abraham that this is a covenant that he shall keep. And we've just read about the, 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 uh, Abraham being uh, told to gather these an- animals, to cut them in two, place them opposite one another. And then we have this representation of God passing between the cloven animals. Now that, sound, that may sound like a, an odd thing to do in terms of a, a, making a covenant, but let me assure you, uh, this is, was not foreign to the days of Abraham. This is how covenants were often made. Uh, covenants were cut. The word covenant actually means to cut in the Hebrew. And so this covenant has been cut with these cloven animals, and there's purpose behind all that. But there's another reason we should take particular notice of this covenant, and that is because it has a more prominent place in the New Testament than all the other covenants from the Old Testament. A more prominent place. Now, I say this not because it's mentioned more times than other covenants. That distinction would likely be given to the Davidic covenant. I think that may have been mentioned more times in the New Testament than the the Abrahamic covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant is written about with greater detail than any other Old Testament covenant in the New Covenant or the New Testament. We have just read from Romans 4. That entire chapter is dedicated to the Abrahamic covenant. And I know of no other Old Testament covenant that has that distinction, an entire chapter dedicated to it. So this particular covenant is very important to the apostles and their thinking back on the Old Testament and how it relates to the new. I will be preaching two sermons, as I've mentioned, on the Abrahamic covenant because of uh, other unique characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. Those we will find in chapter 17 of uh, Genesis. So next week we'll be there. Again, the unique characteristic of today's chapter is the self-maledictory oath made by God in response to a request by Abraham regarding God's promise. So that's a big word, maledictory. So what is a self-maledictory oath? Well, I need to unpack that for us. The word malediction in Webster's Dictionary is defined as a curse. Malediction, mal meaning bad or evil. Diction means word. It's a it, most literal translation is a bad word, and we would call that a curse, right? If we were to say that about somebody else, we're cursing them if we gave them a malediction. Well, this is a self-maledictory oath. He's saying something bad about himself. He's cursing himself. So we're going to look at that in just a few moments. In our text, in our text today, we see the seriousness of God in his making promises to Abraham. This is not a tertiary matter to God. This is very serious, and we're going to see just how serious in a few minutes. Abraham's covenanted promises, then, are unique in this aspect. God responds to a question posed by Abraham with an oath to curse himself should he not keep this covenant. That's what God is doing here. He's... Abraham poses a question to him, and God answers it, answers that question with an oath against himself that he, if he should not keep it, what has happened to these animals should happen to him, to God. Not to Abraham, but to God. 
Next week, we shall look at the Abrahamic covenant as it's described in Genesis 17, as I've mentioned. I will also briefly talk about chapter 16 next week, which records the birth of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, to Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. Though Ishmael is not the son of God's promise in Genesis 15, he does become a pseudo-son of promise to the Muslims. And so I'll comment on that briefly next week. But turning to our text today, we shall consider two prominent themes found here. And those two themes are these. The faith of Abraham and its connection to salvation. And two, God's oath in this covenant. So let's begin uh, in verse 4. I'm going to read again verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now verse 6, this is critical. And he believed in the Lord. And he, God, accounted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, God had said to Abraham that he, God, was Abraham's great reward in the, in the very first part of the chapter. Yet Abraham retorts to God that he, and I'm going to start using the word, the, the, the name that God uses with him in the passage. Remember, Abram, changed, his name's changed by God to Abraham. I'll speak about that next week. But right now, he's being called Abram. So Abram retorts to God that he, Abram, had no heir and that Eliezer, a servant child in his household, was his heir. There was a servant in the household who was a a Chaldean, uh, and Eliezer is is of that servant, born uh, in the household, but not of the the, uh, loins of Abram, just a, a servant a servant child in the household. He's the closest thing to an heir that Abram has in his own household. But God then specifically corrects Abram by taking him outside by night and drawing Abram's attention to the night sky and says, count the stars uh, if you're able to number them, so your descendants shall be. Then one of the most important verses in all of the scriptures recorded about the faith of Abram. God also says, this, this child of this servant is not your heir. I'm going to give you an heir from your own loins. A child of your own. Now, at, when this first happened, uh, in two chapters previously, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's chapter 13. I suppose I could look back there quickly. First five or six verses. Abraham's 75 years old when this first is told to Abraham. So a few years have passed, until chapter the chapter we're in now, I think it's uh, if if memory uh, serves me right through my studies this past week, about five years have passed until we come back to this promise that God has already given to Abram. God comes back. Abram's saying, "Wait a minute! It's been five years. I was seventy-five then. I'm all I'm eighty now." It, 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 some commentators say he could have been as old as eighty-three. God, you said you were going to do this. I'm not getting any younger here. Uh, 
where's this child that you promised? Okay, I know what you, you must be thinking this, this Eliezer. That's my heir. God says, no, that's not your heir. The heir is going to come from your loins. And you can almost see in, mind, in your mind's eye the face of Abram. I'm 80 years old and I'm promised another, I was promised a child. Well, guess what? It's still it's going to take another eight or so years before the child's actually born. But, but uh, Abram believed the Lord and it was accounted to him in right, for righteousness. He actually believes God's saying this. He's, he believes it, although he, he's trying to figure out humanly how this is going to be possible. And I don't need to go into great detail about this today. Next week, we'll look at it a little more carefully. Ishmael. He says, okay, I'll take my wife, Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and she'll bear me a son, which she does. His name's Ishmael, and Abram thinks that's the son of the promise. God corrects him again. No, that's not the way I'm doing this. You need to believe in my promises the way I want to do them. Here we see, though, with this belief in God that God's going to accomplish this great task, God promises his blessing to Abram not because of anything Abram has done by means of merit. Abram hasn't merited anything. God came into his life and he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay? Did God ask for, or did Abram ask for God to come into his life and, and, and make him a, a, a treasured possession of God's? No. God did that of his own doing. He chose Abram. Abram didn't choose God, God chose him. And he brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he starts these promises to Abram. Abram is receiving from God an unmerited favor. In his lowly estate, God takes, takes him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and, and Abram takes God at his word and believes God will bless him with offspring that cannot be counted. Remember, he takes him out to the, the stars of the sky and says, count them if you can. Well, uh, I don't know if you've been to the Creation Museum yet or not. We've got some visitors here today. If you've not been there, see me after the worship service. We'll help you out in that regard. But you need to go to the planetarium. If you've not been to the planetarium, you need to go there. They have an exhibit there, that they, uh, uh, audio-visual exhibit, that they play that expands your understanding of the cosmos. Now, you can't get your head around it. It just kind of blows your understanding out, way out. And it, it, uh, you, you, when you leave that place, you feel like you're a speck in the cosmos. Guess what? You're a speck in the cosmos. That's true. In fact, God calls us dirt. Did you know that Adam's name means... Uh, Red dirt, it comes from the word adma, which means dirt. So we're a speck in the cosmos. And, you know, we come from dust and we'll return to dust. But God says there's other wonderful things promised to us. And we're to believe God in his promises just like Abraham did. I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm in my 80s and you're going to give me a child. Now he does try to... Uh, humanly speaking, make this happen, but God says otherwise. But brethren, this is the very essence of God giving to mankind the means by which a man can be saved. 
It, in its simplest terms, belief in God is the essence of man's salvation. Belief in God is the essence of man's salvation. It has always been belief or faith in God that is accounted to men for salvation. It's never been otherwise. And was this not the case with Noah as we looked at Noah last week? Noah believed God would destroy the earth with a worldwide flood and thus did as God had commanded. He built an ark. Now the world had never been flooded before, but he believed God at his word. And God said, it's going to happen. And Noah built an ark. Faith in God's word resulted in, in actions by Noah, but faith preceded the actions. God used the ark to save Noah and his family from the flood, but if, if Noah had not acted on the faith, the words of God, these things are going to happen, he would never have been saved. He would have suffered like all of the men on earth, save for the, that family of seven that God preserved in the ark. This is the same message that the Apostle Paul gave to the Philippian jailer, who having experienced the miraculous freeing of the prisoners by a great earthquake, cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Here this, this Philippian jailer was ready to take his own life. He feared that all of the, the criminals had been released because their chains had fallen off, the doors of their cells were open. When he recognized this, apparently he walked into the, into the prison and he saw the door standing open. And he already assumed these men were gone. They were there. He pulls a sword. He's, re he's ready to take his own life. And Paul and Silas say, wait, don't do that. He says, what must I do to be saved? How can I escape punishment for letting these, these uh, convicts go? And they, were, they retorted to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's in Acts 16.31. Now it could be that that Philippian jailer was asking, how can I prevent being punished by my superiors? But Paul and Silas was looking at his eternal condition. You probably won't escape that, except if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. God's way of salvation has been and always will be the same. Salvation is by God's graciously speaking to men, by and with His words, who then believe God at His words. That's what we call faith, belief. Belief that God will do what He says He will do. That would be accounted to those men who believe as righteousness. And of course, that we call faith. The reason it has always been that way and shall always be that way is because God does not change. God is the all-faithful being. And therefore, being made in His image, we too are created to act as His image bearers. We are to act by and through faith in Him. God is faithful, and we are to trust by faith that He will do what He says. God again promises Abraham an inheritance, which necessarily presumes an heir to receive the inheritance. This we see in verse 7, 
where we read, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. This is the reiteration of God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12. That's where it is. I did have it in my notes. It's in chapter 12. And at that time, Abraham was 75 years old. Eight years later, when Abraham's 83 years old, Abraham poses the question to God that we find here in verse 8. He said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Think about this, brethren. If you're going to give an inheritance, excuse me, if you've been promised an inheritance, it means that somebody's going to receive it. An inheritance doesn't just go to the winds or isn't, you know, out there floating in the cosmos. An inheritance belongs to somebody. It belongs to the person who's going to receive it, the inheritance, the promise. And Abraham, without an heir, you're promising me heirs that number like the stars in the skies? Who are these people? I don't even have a child. How do I get heirs that numerous? How does that come to pass? That's, what God, that's what's in the mind of Abraham. And Abraham is wondering how long will God wait to give an, that's this heir to a man of his age and a wife of Sarah's age. She's past childbearing. If she's anywhere near his age, she's already past childbearing. God, you're going to have to do something miraculous here. Guess what? That's what God does. Well, God reassures Abraham in a most serious and profound way. God makes an oath that includes a curse upon himself if he fails to perform all that he has promised. That's how he answers Abraham. Now, if you were to ask God a question and he were to do something like this for you, I hope you'd pay attention. I hope you'd take note of it. This is, this is one serious answer. You know, we, we post in our minds, we post questions to God all the time. And where do we go to get the answers? It's right here in front of us. It's a book. Yes, it takes time to read it. Yes, it takes time to study it. And yes, the answers are here. The answers are here. They're not just in Genesis, but the answer, some of the answers are in Genesis and some of them are throughout the rest of scriptures. Okay. Enough for a bad joke. All right. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. I want to read verses 9 through 11. We need to have fresh in our memories this profound answer, how God answers this question that Abraham poses. First of all, it's pretty gracious, isn't it, of God just to answer a question? Wait a minute. I'm God. I do these things all the time. Why are you, why are you questioning whether I'm going to do it or not? But let's, let's look at this, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 21. So he said to him, Bring me three year, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them, drove them away. The vultures. He drove the vultures away. So you say, well, Wait a minute, God didn't tell him to cut them in two. I suspect he did. We don't have that recorded, but why else would he have done it? If, he's, if God says, go get these animals, what am I going to do with them, Lord? Obviously, there's some more instruction there that we've not been given by God in his revelation. Verse 12, 
Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. The Scriptures teach us that if we, we were actually to see God, we would immediately die. Because He's holy and we're not. That's why Moses was hidden in a cleft of a rock and only saw the hinder parts of God as he passed by. Otherwise, he would have been consumed. And so, why did this deep sleep come upon Abram? So that he wouldn't die as God passes, as he, God shows him what's happening here. He's going to pass between these cloven animals. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Who is he speaking of? He's talking about the slavery in Egypt. Your people, your descendants will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So God is prophesying to Abram here at this point. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. I will judge them for how they treat your people. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And of course, that's what we see in the book of Exodus. When they leave uh, Egypt, the, the Egyptians pay them to leave. When the firstborn were of man, men and, and uh, animals were killed, what do the Egyptians do? We've had enough. Take our wealth with you. Leave. Get out of here. We can't stand it anymore. Now, of course, Pharaoh, that didn't last very long for Pharaoh because then he pulled his army together and started chasing them. But initially, the Egyptians paid the Israelites to leave. And also the nation whom you serve, I will judge, after they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Well, he's already there. He's already, from our perspective, he's already at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, here, the generations here is about a hundred years. He's saying, they shall return, the people of your, your people, the people of, of Abraham's seed, will return here after that 400 years of bondage. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Excuse me? See, we, when we look at what God's doing in our lives, we see you know, just a little speck of time and a little speck of circumstance. But God's, He's planned the, the whole cosmos from the end, from the beginning. From things, He's planned things that are not yet done. And He's thinking not only about His people, Abraham's people, He's thinking about the Amorites. And He's giving them 400 years to repent. But at the end of that, that's it. I've had it with the Amorites. They're going to be judged. As are the Egyptians. As are all the, those nations that are, that are uh, listed at the end of the chapter. And it came to pass then when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, now I got my pages mixed up. Here we go. To your descendants I have given this land from the river Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium. The Rephium are giants, by the way. The Amorites, the Canaanites, Gershites, and Jebusites. God is giving them all of this land and they will possess it. Now this brings me to the, 
to the notion of the self-maledictory oath. God's expression of his sincerity to Abraham is profound. In Abram's impatience, God not only provides an incredible visual response to Abram's question with the cleaving of these animals and him passing between them, God also shows forth his long-suffering with the Amorites, his coming judgment on the Egyptians and Amorites, and the promise of great inheritance in the land and with the possessions that his people will, will have when they leave Egypt. Not only will your, your uh, descendants number as the stars in the sky, I am going to give them the wealth of Egypt and I am going to give them a land which flows with milk and honey, a place of great blessing. Now, time only permits me to comment on the blood oath that is being taken here. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, refers to this as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And why is this important? I'll speak to this more next week. But first, we must take note that, that God that only God is taking an oath here. This covenant is being made with Abraham, but only God is taking the oath. Abram does not pass between the cloven animals. God alone passes between them as a firebrand. So what does this signify? Well, in ancient times, covenants were often sealed with a blood oath. Such covenants were of the most profound kind the blood oath indicated that the covenant being made was unto death. If blood was involved, it was a covenant unto death. The covenant maker was saying that if he reneged on the covenant, his blood would be shed. So in our passage today, that is being promised by God. But God takes it a step further. God is saying, if I don't keep this promise, I am to be cloven in two, and I am to be made food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. In short, God is saying, I'm to be made a, a spectacle of doom. If I don't keep my promise, I'm to be made a spectacle of doom. That's what he's showing forth here. No greater assurance of God keeping his covenant could be made to Abraham. He's swearing by his own name that I will keep this covenant. What greater name could be sworn by? He's pledging his own demise to a creature of his own making if he fails to keep his promise. I'm going to let a creature take my life. That, that alone is hard for us to get our heads around. And this imagery will have ramifications up to and including the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And as we get closer to the new covenant, I'll speak to that as well. All right, I need to bring this to an end. Here God is saying, I have given a possession to a people who do not yet exist. Notice in verse 18, on the same day that the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river Euphrates, or Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates. I have given this land. It's not... They will possess it later, but they already own it now. Ownership belongs to them. I've given a possession to a people who do not yet exist. Abram's son Isaac would, be born, would not be born for another 16 years. 16 more years. 
The heirs to the promise are only yet a promise to Abraham, but God perceives them as already possessing the inheritance. They already possess it, according to God, his word right here. Abram's heirs are the rightful possessors of the promised land, and they have yet to be born when God makes this promise to Abram. This is why O. Palmer Robertson calls this a sovereignly, sovereignly administered covenant. And that is because God is sovereign over not only what has come to pass, but what shall come to pass. He has decreed all that shall come to pass. And I, I remind us of this passage often. I want to do it again from Isaiah chapter 46. Hear these words. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. That's kind of a reference to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, at that point. He's, 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 he came from the east and he conquered Israel. He was the the uh, uh, one of the kings, uh, one of the birds of prey from the east. The man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. Spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. That's the sovereign hand of God. He's given an inheritance to Abraham to people who don't even exist yet. And they already own it. Brethren, when were you saved? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when were you saved? Before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. God is sovereign over everything. He chooses those who will be His own. And he shows grace and mercy to a people who don't deserve it. Do any of us deserve salvation? Not a one. And yet God does that, doesn't He? Because He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. What a profound thing to think about. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. That's what the Scriptures teach us. Let's pray together.